for a drive in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Don't turn on your GPS. Just go with your gut. Find yourself with a lot of choices, left or right, up or down the mountain. Turn back or keep driving into the unknown. Every choice decides your destiny. Tipping over one row of dominoes, ignoring another, setting in motion your new life. There might come a day you wonder, what would have happened if you'd turned left or back? Maybe you wouldn't have gotten into that wreck or met the lover who broke your heart. That kind of thinking can drive a man mad because what you could have done means nothing. That road you could have taken, it evaporated the moment you chose a different path. You do it every day. Do you hit snooze or jump out of bed, drink coffee or tea, try to beat a red light or slam on the brakes, wear sensible shoes or then I had on a pair of alligator shoes with leather bottoms on. Foster said he had told me not to uh, not to wear leather bottom shoes. We didn't have the money to buy no rougher shoes. <laughs> you got what I'm saying? We was all just about broke. Four out of five burglars agree. Leather-bottomed alligator shoes are the wrong choice when you're setting out to commit not one, but two serious crimes. We looked around. We got the bank we was going to get, and there was a police in town. So what we was going to do is go up to his little station and we was going to kidnap him. This story is all about four men dead set on burglarizing a small-town southern bank and stealing all of its money after cutting into an almost impenetrable cannonball safe. They're eight to nine inches thick with tongs and steel, and then none of us at that time know how to drill the doors on those things, so we will cut into it with a burning bar. If you know what a blowtorch is, think of a burning bar as a blowtorch on amphetamines, a white, hot, fiery knife that can cut through eight inches of tungsten steel. The burglary crew stole torches and fuel tanks and then worked out the plan to kidnap a cop. You know, snatch him, take him, take his car, put the cutting torches, settling tanks and uh, things in the back of his car, pull them in front of the bank, knock the loudmouth alarm out, and then go in and they make our entry. And then we back off for about 30 minutes to make sure it wasn't no silent alarm. And then we'll go in and take the police in and handcuff him to some uh, water pipes and put, put a tow sack or something over his head so he couldn't see. The plan seemed foolproof. Four men, three guns, a driver with a trunk full of equipment. That was me and Larry Hacker and Raymond. Raymond had the shotgun, I had a pistol, and uh, Larry had a pistol. Foster was sitting over the railroad tracks. He says in his book that he went to make a phone call, but that's, that's, that's a total lie. He was waiting on us to take the police down there, and he was going to come up well, and, and was going to drop the settling and asking tanks off. Hell, it just might have worked. No reason it shouldn't have. Except, but instead, when we went to grab the police, we were all on one end of the building, which was a mistake. Yes, except for that mistake and these slick bottom alligator shoes, it might have worked. When the police come out, we threw down on him. Well, he run. Well, there I go running after him. And when he turned and started shooting, I stopped and my feet went straight up there. If you haven't been in a shootout with the police, you should know of all the defensive positions you could take flat on your back with your legs in the air might be the worst. So I'm there and the bullets are coming right up between my legs and I'm shooting at the police and Larry's shooting at him and there stood Raymond with a shotgun. He could have stopped it right there. At this point, if you're the one with bullets zipping past your sensitive parts, you might think, Shotgun Ray, you had one job. We are there to protect each other. 
Shotgun Ray didn't do his job, and so the man in the alligator's shoes got hurt. Well, I was shot. The bullet, luckily, it had bounced off the pavement and hit me right on the left-hand cheek of that. And you're talking about hurt, and it hurt. <laughs> I felt, it felt like to me it hit something else, which I'm not going to call the name of, okay? Because I don't think you put that on the air. In the dead of night, those leather-bottom shoes limped away. And if you ask, well, what happened to the cop that shot you in the ass? I don't know what happened to the officer, okay? I'm, I'm not saying that he got shot. I'm not saying he got anything. I, I don't know. We got away. We figured there would be a lot, a lot of heat behind this, whether the police got shot or whether he didn't get shot. He was going to call it in, and there's going to be a dragnet everywhere. The four-man crew hid out in the woods, afraid the cops were coming, afraid the bullet had done fatal damage. I said, look here, I said, I don't know where I'm hit, but I'm, if I'm bleeding internally and I die, I'm killing Raymond before I die because he could have stopped all this. Right there, in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, Summary judgment. Shotgun Ray, guilty of cowardice. Sentenced to death. They begged me and begged me and begged me. I got out of the car. I was going to kill it. The man in the alligator shoes had a decision to make. Turn right and shoot a man in the head. Or turn the other cheek and show mercy. He chose mercy. And while there's no way to know what would have happened if he had decided to put a bullet in Ray's head that night, we know that decision led the man in the alligator shoes on a walk that's lasted nearly 50 more legendary years and to the place where he tells us his story today. This call is from a federal prison. This call is from... Eddie Williamson. Good morning, Brad. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. Spend a day or two asking folks about the 1970s underworld in the South, and guaranteed, you'll hear the name. Ah, uh, you must be talking about Fast Eddie. Fast Eddie Williamson. Spend several years interviewing people, you'll hear that name more times than you can count. From people in the court system. Name is Eddie Williamson, otherwise known as Fast Eddie Williamson. Retired undercover cops. I knew him as Fast Eddie Williamson. Everybody knew him as Fast Eddie. 1970s political candidates. He tells him about how much he loves old Eddie, Eddie Williamson. The sitting county sheriff. Eddie Williamson. Fast Eddie. Fast Eddie. Near as I can tell, Fast Eddie's a bad man. Fast Eddie's bad, but he became my friend. Current deputies. He looks over at me and goes, might make your career. I can buy cocaine from Fast Eddie Williamson. And retired federal judges. He said, I tell you what you do. You get psyched up so you don't mind dying and you don't mind killing. When you reach that point, nothing can stop you. You get to hearing the name so much, you start to create a picture of him in your head. And you wonder what his voice sounds like. How a man with a legendary reputation as a stone-cold criminal might sound if you had the chance to talk to him. Turns out, he sounds like this. Are you ready? Fast Eddie, as far as his birth certificate is concerned, is Arthur Edward Williamson Jr. As far as the courts are concerned, a member of the South's most notorious bank robbery gang, and as far as the legend is concerned, one of the smartest, coolest, most dangerous men to ever grow up in West Greenville. Honest to God, would have shot him right there myself. His contemporaries warned me not to cross him, 
my friends asked if I was crazy. But early on in the Murder Etc. investigation, I realized there might be no one else left on Earth who knows more about what happened in the organized and disorganized 1970s crime syndicates in the South. And despite all the warnings... First of all, he's not stupid. He's articulate, number one. Always thinking ahead of time. I went to work to see if I could get Fast Eddie to tell me what he knows. What made that task harder is that Fast Eddie is serving life in federal prison. Even harder than that, Fast Eddie doesn't talk to anyone he doesn't trust. I wrote him a letter in September of 2018. That led to emails, sometimes 10 a week. If Eddie's prison warden had agreed to it, Fast Eddie would have sat down for an in-person, full-length interview. Instead, 10 months after that first letter, in the summer of 2019, Fast Eddie Williamson called me. Can you hear me good? And now, for the first time ever, Fast Eddie is letting someone record his voice as he tells what he knows about that legendary decade of robbery, murder, and mayhem. It's very hard to know where to begin with telling Fast Eddie's story. I talked about his childhood and other parts of his life in the episode called Love and Hate. That happened before Eddie finally decided to pick up the phone. But there is so much of the story to tell, I can't tell it all. Fast Eddie is spending hours every day working on his memoir. But for the purposes of this episode, I wanted to know, just how did a tough kid from West Greenville, someone with a talent as a card mechanic and a dice cheat, a fearless fighter who survived being shot as a teenager, how did he become one of the first members of a gang that robbed dozens of banks across the Southeast? Eddie's story begins with a gun. Where it all started at, I had one on the run for the Club 29 incident. In August of 1971, Fast Eddie killed a man named Tommy Pearson in a bar fight at a place called Club 29. Shot him in the face. Eddie hadn't planned it. It just happened. But rather than stick around and see what the cops thought, Eddie headed where he figured a Southerner wouldn't care to look. He went north. And I was living in Chicago, and me and Cotton McGuire got into some problems up there, and we had to leave because a certain guy got killed up there. The Chicago McGuires eventually figure heavily into South Carolina's crime troubles. But when Eddie and Cotton slipped out of Chicago, they headed back south to hook up with some proper scoundrels, just not South Carolina scoundrels. And we went down and we were living with DeWitt Dawson and those boys down in Leeton, Alabama. Leeton, Alabama is adjacent to Muscle Shoals. And if you don't know that region, only its music outplays its criminals. Muscle Shoals is home to some of the most important music recordings in history. The Stones recorded there, Etta James, Otis Redding, all the way forward to the drive-by truckers, Jason Isbell. Leonard Skinner told you Muscle Shoals has the Swampers, some of the most historic studio players in the world. And just about anybody who knows anything about the Dixie Mafia will tell you, Leeton had the Dawsons, notorious bootleggers with a legacy of being in the top echelon of Southern gangsters. Fast Eddie says he was hanging out with DeWitt Dawson, the patriarch of the crime family. It was just after Thanksgiving, 1971, when Eddie got bad news about one of his closest friends. It was another bar fight. One of the South's scariest men, Harold Scar Taylor, was the kind of guy who'd scare you when he was in a good mood. And if he was in a bad mood, he'd kill you. There were lots of witnesses to the bar fight, and they almost all had different stories. But no matter which version you pick, 
you'll end up hearing about a bloody shootout inside a bar called, for fans of irony, the Good Fellowship Club. Two men died. Scar ended up charged with murder. Harold Taylor, Scar Taylor, he had got charged with it, but he got shot too. This entire story, this entire podcast, might have been different if Scar Taylor had been in a better mood that night at the Good Fellowship Club. Instead, he ended up in the hospital, and Fast Eddie, still on the lam for his own deadly Greenville County bar fight, couldn't stay away from Greenville. I came back to Greenville, and I went to see Scar, because Scar was my friend. Me and Scar were closer than any, Scar and anybody else. We, we had run together for a couple of years. I didn't have no brothers and sisters growing up, so he was like a brother to me. Fast Eddie left Alabama and headed for upstate South Carolina, where he reunited with Scar and a motley crew he'd met before that night at Club 29. Him, Luke Cannon, and Buff Skelton is the ones who introduced me to all the people to begin with, to Foster Sellers, Jimmy Kramer, to uh, the whole crew out there at the Hampton Arms where they were living at before I got into the Club 29 deal. Back in Greenville, Fast Eddie paid a visit to his friend at the hospital and then ran into Foster Sellers, Larry Hacker, and a guy named Raymond. I'm not using his last name because I'm not entirely clear on who he is. And, well, you'll see. And Eddie is only talking about Larry Hacker because the statute of limitations has run out on the crimes. In any case, Eddie hooked up with these guys and lit out of Greenville once again. Picked me up out there and I went with him and we went down to a state below there and first started burglarizing banks. Eddie says that casually, but that was the moment Greenville County, South Carolina became inextricably tied to the so-called Dawson Gang and its crimes. That was the fork in the road where Fast Eddie Williamson made a decision. He chose the road to being notorious. But first, before they were bank robbers, they were bank burglars. And that is how a cop ended up shooting Eddie in the ass. After his escape, and after not killing Shotgun Ray, Eddie discovered he too was going to live. We went in and I got in the hot tub, and I wasn't bleeding in turn. I found out where it was at, and I knew where I could feel the bullet. So, you know, it was all right. The crew was alive physically, but they were all dead broke. And three out of the four of them were on the lam. Fast Eddie was on the run from the Club 29 shooting. The state of Iowa wanted Foster Sellers. Tennessee was looking for Larry Hacker, a man who would one day orchestrate a legendary prison break. This is retired FBI agent Tom Donahue. Hacker and another guy built some kind of a ladder. They actually got out over the wall. They escaped. A third guy jumped on the ladder and escaped at the same time. And that was the guy who killed Martin Luther King, James Earl Ray. Tennessee, as destiny would have it, is where the foursome ended up next. They found a little small-town bank and planned to break in and use their burning bars to cut into the vault. But they still had one giant pain in the ass. Well, you know, I'm still real sore. So they told me, said, look here, so sit on the side of this mountain right here and give me the walkie-talkie, and they had walkie-talkies, and says, if you see the police coming, you just tell us. Fast Eddie sat, gingerly, on the side of the Tennessee mountain and kept watch as his crew broke in. They'd just opened the vault, and then... And here went a police car down through there. It was an unmarked car, but he went down so fast, but you could see him slowing down when he went by there and went on up. So I hit him. I said, we got company. 
the men escaped again, with nothing to show for it, again. They hid in the woods, again, and then made another decision. Ray, we sent him on back because all of us, I mean, they were, they were sick of him as I was because he was, he was whining and crying. So we got rid of him and went up into Illinois. Rid of Ray in the land of Lincoln, Foster Sellers, Larry Hacker, and Fast Eddie Williamson sat again at a crossroads. Turn left and burglarize a bank. Turn right. We had everything ready. We didn't have the car. We had we had everything. Settling tanks, oxygen tanks, we had it all. I said, no, man, the heck with burglarizing this bank. We're going to rob this bank. Every turn, every decision, a new destiny. Not just for themselves, but for people all over the South. Tom Donahue would eventually be one of the FBI agents chasing Fast Eddie, Foster Sellers, and the rest of the crew around the South. A chase that went on so long, even a seasoned federal agent had to shake his head in wonder. I was stunned. By the time we finished, they were all over. I mean, they were Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And they weren't just small amounts either. It's impossible to know just how many banks or how much money the Dawson gang stole during the 1970s. But some folks put it at more than 100 banks and $8 million. Because, hell, their felonious trip around the South might have started with some awkward baby steps. But by the time they finished, Fast Eddie and his crew were professionals. That's coming up right after this break. When I launched Murder, Etc. in February of 2019, I'd planned to do around 20 episodes and finish in August. I made that guess before listeners started coming out of the shadows to tell what they know. Even now, in the middle of episode 18, I've discovered that this episode was too big to tell in any reasonable amount of listening time. So that means another episode. Because the etc. is much bigger than even I imagined when I started telling this story. Getting to the end will take most of the year, and we could use your help. If you enjoyed Murder, Etc., and you'd like to lend your support to the effort, you can donate at paypal.me slash murderetc. That's paypal.me slash murderetc. Or, if you use Venmo, you can send a donation directly to Murder ETC. We also have a bunch of serious listeners in the Amateurs Etc. group who offer a small monthly donation for insider access, bonus episodes, and more. You can learn more on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. People have called Eddie Williamson a lot of things. But you won't hear many people call him stupid. And when it came to robbing banks, Fast Eddie wasn't just smart. He was disciplined. Our whole idea was this. When we went in, we stayed a minute and a half. Do you understand what I'm saying? No more. At one time in Packard, we stayed just a few seconds longer. In Duncan, they stayed just a few seconds longer. But they had to to get all the money. That kind of precision timing took time to mature. So when Fast Eddie, Foster Sellers, and Larry Hacker made it to Illinois, they had to wing it. Eddie says Foster Sellers wasn't really a bank robber at that point, and Larry Hacker had more experience than any of them. At that point, the gang that would become famous for wearing ski masks and hitting banks as soon as they opened decided to improvise. We didn't have nothing to cover our head up. We took sweaters, cut arms out of sweaters, 
And I said, man, well, we're waiting too late. They wanted to wait till uh, 4.30. Uh, so the bank's hour said it's closed at 5 o'clock. I said, we're waiting too late. Fast Eddie watched as customers walked up to the front of the bank, paused just a second, and then went inside. Eventually, Eddie and the crew decided it was time they go inside, too. We jumped out of the car. We run up to the doors. And there's a man sitting right there. I, I know he had a buzzer to let people in. It's the only way. And when we run up, we mop the doors. Well, it scared these people to death. There stood three men, improvised masks on their faces, guns in their hands, and a locked door in front of them. What could they do? We had to run just like we robbed the bank. All of us were scared. They ran, got in their stolen cars, and squealed out to get their secret getaway vehicle. They pushed the accelerator down and hit a crossroads. When faced with a decision of which way to go, made the wrong turn where we could actually get away and, and we was going to stash the car. That wrong turn could have stopped the Dawson gang from ever becoming the Dawson gang. They could have been arrested. They could have been discouraged by their fear and the danger. But, as you probably guessed, that's not what happened. Fast Eddie, Foster Sellers, and Larry Hacker were a lot of things, but they were not quitters. We found a big, it was a big gully there with a creek in it, and we run through a field and we run the car off down in to the gully and we walked to the railroad tracks and we walked almost 15 to 20 miles to get to our car. If that botched job, wrong turn, and near marathon walk was any sort of message, a message like, hey guys, don't rob banks, Fast Eddie and the crew didn't listen. They'd already crossed the invisible line between burglars and robbers. They weren't turning back. They were going to Tennessee. We have arrived. It was Christmas time when they found a Tennessee hamlet with one little bank. We found the bank. We cased it. They prepared in the only way they could, what with, you know, not even having money for Christmas presents. Went and stole the car. We had a motel room. We had 57 cents in our pocket. We fill our regular car up with gas. They had cops from three states looking for them and no money in their pockets. But they had a bank. A vulnerable bank. This bank, you couldn't go into the back door, but you could come out the back door. We had to park down at the corner of the building. We had watched the police go to a restaurant. That's when we went down. We walked up in front of the building. Imagine the holiday cheer. Husbands out buying last-minute gifts for their wives. Children looking into the southern sky for Santa. And three wanted men with sweater sleeves over their faces. On Christmas Eve day, now people shopping left and right. I got the shotgun up under under a coat. I got the thing in my hand, and when I walked into the bank, I tried to pull the sweater sleeve down, and it come off. Luckily, I just ducked my head and I pulled it on down. This time, it worked. In a matter of minutes, the crew went from having 57 cents to a new fortune. And we robbed the bank, and we got $16,800 felt like a million dollars. What does a guy do in that situation? After escaping South Carolina, escaping Chicago, escaping a police officer's bullet, what does a guy do then? Well, apparently, he decides to live dangerously. From there, messed around, we finally went back down to Greenville. After the holidays, Eddie Williamson was back in Greenville County, 
wanted for Tommy Pearson's death and about to get caught. On January 24, 1972, one of the cops spotted Fast Eddie. They chased him first in a car and then on foot into the woods. Nine hours later, Williamson was in cuffs, charged with murder. And maybe, not all that surprising at this point, within hours, Williamson had made bond in Greenville County. The newspaper story announcing his arrest featured Lieutenant Bub Skelton as the sheriff's office spokesman, which is interesting because only a few weeks later, Bub had went over carried us over a long time before that to case the bank and do all that kind of stuff. It was time to take a road trip to Six Mile. On the morning of March 3rd, 1972, just after 8 a.m., a little girl was in the car with her daddy on the way to school in Six Mile, South Carolina, a sleepy community in rural Pickens County, about an hour west of Greenville. The father pulled his 66 Mustang into a little store called Parrots, like the bird, right across the street from the Six Mile branch of Banker's Trust. His daughter went in to buy some candy, and when she came out, her dad pointed across the road at an old Ford Fairlane and a man in purple coveralls coming out of the bank. The dad looked at his daughter, pointed at the man in the purple clothes, and said he needed some of those. They laughed and headed toward school. Having no idea, they'd just been among the first witnesses to one of South Carolina's first known Dawson gang bank robberies. When you think about the kinds of decisions you make on the road, left, right, up, down, Six Mile, South Carolina is very much a place you'd end up only if you decided in advance that's where you were driving. The town is less than two miles square, a quaint and quiet, blink and you'll miss it kind of place. Today, it's home to fewer than 700 people. Back in the mid 70s, the town's population was half that size. It doesn't sound like the kind of place that would mark something so important in the criminal history of South Carolina. And yet, that is exactly what it is. One Saturday morning, I made the decision to turn my truck towards Six Mile and go looking for any remnants of the stories I heard. Looking for anything. Six Mile Farmers Depot. I found the old elementary school. Shattered windows, overgrown with weeds, looking like something out of a dystopian novel set in a small town. But a little farther up the road, a couple of old boys were shooting the breeze and just as charming as they could be. I asked if they were from Six Mile and without missing a beat, they joked they'd been there for decades but almost nobody could claim to be from Six Mile. You've got to be third generation to claim residence. After 25 years, they dropped the transient status. <laughs> Y'all have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Guy said you got to be third generation to claim residence. The lady at the convenience store looked like she could have been around in the early 70s, but she couldn't remember anything about the bank robbery either. For the men who would eventually be known as the Dawson Gang, they picked Six Mile in part because it only had one cop, and he lived the next town over. The morning of the robbery, the robbers drove to the cop's house and punched holes in the patrol car's gas tank. Dollar General. There's a Dollar General everywhere. On the morning I was in Six Mile, somebody was hosting a kid's birthday party in the grass on the side of the main road. On the other side... Well, this is it. It's a really tiny little bank. A building that barely looked big enough to park my truck inside. It measured 16 by 24 feet. See, the ice cream parlor is bigger than the bank. Back in 1972, the building was little more than two teller windows, a vault, and a cramped space where customers could wait. And on March 3rd of that year, 
Just as the bank opened, three men, Foster Sellers, Larry Hacker, and Fast Eddie Williamson, pulled up in a Ford Fairlane stolen from nearby Clemson University. Two of them stormed in with guns. This time, they actually had ski masks. One of them was wearing a construction hard hat. And after one very important lesson learned, they were all wearing sensible shoes. One man said, all right, ladies, down on the floor. Then a robber asked about the money, and when one of the tellers didn't answer, he tapped her on the shoulder with his gun, saying, I said, is there money in the drawers? Speak up, lady. The crew had improved, but they hadn't perfected their craft yet. They got the money, but they tried and failed to lock the tellers in the vault, and then struggled to get over the little half door between the lobby and the tellers with anything that resembled grace. But they made it out. They had robbed a bank again. And this time, they got more than $31,000. But when we robbed Six Mile, we hit the car, we covered it up with treetops, and we walked from Six Mile all the way to Clemson to where we had the car. It was a shorter hike than they'd had back in Illinois, but it still wasn't easy to escape. They had a lake between them and their hidden getaway car. And you were seeing the time we had getting across that bridge there at Hartwell. With, with all them guns, money, and everything else. It was, it was a mess. Nevertheless, they got away clean. How clean? The case stymied FBI agents so much that after months of investigating, the top brass at the FBI started sending memos to the field agents, criticizing their investigation. The memos did no good. That case remained unsolved for four years as the Dawson gang embarrassed the South Carolina FBI agents again and again. Everybody knew, at least I learned when I got there, and they knew before that who the bad guys were. We knew who the Dawson gang, we knew Eddie Williamson, we knew who Jackie Dell was. Just couldn't catch him, or didn't catch him. Billy Wilkins didn't become prosecutor for another three years after the Six Mile robbery. And as he started to hear more and more about the gang, he realized the breadth of the problem. It took a long time because, I mean, this is, goes on and on about all the banks they robbed all over the Southeast, you know. And if you talk to Fast Eddie today, you have to do almost no talking and listen as hard as you can because any phone call could be interrupted by a couple of beeps. The phone's gonna cut off in about 15, 20 seconds. Telling you that your 15 minutes of time on the prison phone is about to expire. And if you try to hear the story in 15 minute intervals, it takes a long time to tell. Uh, we wanted to talk about the bank robbers, but there's it, so much there, we ain't got time. We're gonna have to do that on, on a different occasion because there's they they so much there. Fast Eddie is right. If we sat here and went through all of the bank robberies and all of the sordid tales surrounding them, it would take another 10 episodes. Hell, it'd take another podcast. So why spend another entire episode explaining how we got to this point? You could be forgiven if you said, well, this is all very interesting. It's a great story. But what about Frank Looper? What about Rufus Looper? What about Charles Wakefield? What does any of this story of Southern bank robbery have to do with the story I came to hear? Well, it goes back to a name you've heard many times and the people he called friends back in the 1970s. We did have a criminal element here embedded in Greenville County that no one really was aware of. You know, the Dawson gang lived here. Well, that's because you got to live somewhere, you know, and, and that they didn't pick, but they may have picked Greenville County because of Bub Skelton, probably. But uh, 
any event. Bub Skelton, a corrupt sheriff's office lieutenant who ran interference for the Dawson gang, the man you heard telling his foe, Leonard Brown, dare me to come to your house. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins believes the Dawson gang probably made Greenville a home base because Bub Skelton made it easy to hide out here. They hung out over at Adams Junkyard, where FBI agents said all of Bub's underworld friends like to congregate. They all felt comfortable over there. You know, it was right there next to the cemetery. Yeah, yeah. But they would hang out there because, they, you know, they figured it was a safe spot. And if we went farther down that road of bank robberies, all the way to a trial in 1976, 18 months after Frank Looper died, you'd learn. Bub Skelton was friends with a guy named Luke Cannon. A jury convicted both men of being involved in one dozen gang robbery. And then Skelton and Cannon both pleaded guilty to another. That one? The one in Six Mile, South Carolina. And then, maybe still you'd ask, so what? But if you think back a few episodes, you'll remember Prosecutor Billy Wilkins talking about Bub Skelton and that multi-million dollar Table Rock Labs drug heist. I do know he was involved in the Table Rock Laboratory thing because he was kind of surveillance. Uh, it, when a, any security guard would ride by or anything else, he would radio the crowd inside, they'd back the truck up to the dock, the loading dock, so it didn't look suspicious. And you might remember what he said about Bub's longtime friend, Luke. Luke Cannon was a banker. He didn't rob the bank, he didn't sell the dope, but he was the guy that kept the cash, kept the dope, and made sure that it was dribbled out so that nobody was flashing a lot of money at one time, and the drugs stayed around to keep a constant flow of cash coming into the organization. Luke Cannon was the man the FBI, and Billy Wilkins said was behind one of the biggest drug burglaries and sales operations in all of the 1970s, the Table Rock Labs heist. Bub Skelton, Luke Cannon, two men so inseparable in the context of this story, both tied to a seemingly unstoppable bank robbery gang, and both involved in a drug operation the county's most dedicated drug cop couldn't help but face. Billy Wilkins, one of the most respected men in South Carolina's judicial history. Tom Donahue, one of Greenville's most respected federal agents. They don't disagree on what Bub and Luke did. And both men, Billy Wilkins and Tom Donahue, trusted one man to tell the story they tell today. They trusted Fast Eddie Williamson. Eddie's a kind of guy, he's a very intelligent. He's a guy who was like, could have been, done something with his life if he had been brought up differently. It may seem odd that both Wilkins and Donahue worked to put Williamson in prison, but trusted him so much to base their professional reputations on his word. But that is what both men did. They trusted that what Fast Eddie Williamson said was the truth. That's why this episode, and the next one, and then the one after that, will tell you what Fast Eddie says about Table Rock Labs about who shot up Frank Looper's house and why, and about the man Fast Eddie says claimed credit for shooting Frank Looper in the head. It's still my honest belief that someone in law enforcement who knew how to really use a gun killed Frank Looper. Everybody makes choices. You turn left or right. You tip one domino or another. Once you've done it, turned or tipped, it's done. You can't take it back. Frank Looper, whether out of a sense of duty 
or something we'll never know or understand. Stood near the end of a row of dominoes, so far away from where someone made that first decision to knock a domino over, Looper couldn't hear the first dominoes falling. And by the time he heard the clatter growing closer and the gunshots syncopating in the echoes, it was too late to stop them. Imagine a man just out of bed, his slippers still on his feet, not even hearing that noise, but his mom telling him to go listen, to make sure that noise she heard wasn't coming for them. Imagine that man putting a gun in his waistband, stepping out into a warm January afternoon. And imagine that man thinking he can stop it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Murder Etc. It's been a long road to this point, and things are starting to move very quickly. If you'd like to support us for the rest of the years, we work to move this investigation forward. Please check out the front page of our website for three different ways you can help. You also might have seen that Murder Etc. is now part of the Apple Podcast True Crime category. It would help us a lot if you go to iTunes or Apple Podcast and write a short review of what you think about Murder Etc. Before I go, I need to say a quick word of thanks to a guy named Tony. He's not only a listener, He's had his hands on about 3,000 pages of documents that are part of this investigation. Tony runs the UPS store at Hudson Corners in Greer, South Carolina, and he's converted literally thousands of old, fragile paper documents to nice little PDF files I can read on my laptop. And let me tell you, as hard as this investigation can be, having everything digitized and at my fingertips makes things much easier. And it's helping me get to episode 19 even faster. Here's a preview of what's coming up next. You've heard from Frank Looper's family. You've heard from his fiancée. Now hear from a fellow law enforcement officer who stood beside Frank Looper as he protected his cases and tried, maybe in vain, to protect himself from a threat on the inside. I mean, you could see it in his face. He was real concerned about that. And he goes, look, let me tell you something. If they ever ask you anything about what we're doing, or what I'm doing, or anything about me. You call me, you get in touch with me right then. You understand what I'm saying? Lieutenant Frank Looper, under fire, on the next Murder Etc.